five, verses one to ten. Okay, so Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and the laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Amen. So we are going to sing again. I hope it's one that we know. So we stand together and sing, I lift my hands. Um. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. <clears throat> you shall not bow down to them or worship them. There's two commandments in those verses. Those first two commandments have so much in common, they almost blur together. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Yet, in preaching a series like this, we are forced to look at them separately. So, it could be that the repetition is for emphasis. That's a very common thing that happens in scripture, that an idea is repeated for emphasis as a, a rhetorical device. Or it could be that there's a separate and different truth contained in here for us. A simple definition of the commandment against idols is just that we should avoid anything that comes in the place of God. And that feels very similar, doesn't it, to the instruction about having no other gods. So the lazy option for me tonight would be to say it is just repetition, for example, for emphasis, and to replay you Tim's very excellent sermon of last week, no doubt some of you missed, and even if you were here, you'd appreciate hearing it again, um, because it was very good. You could just listen to that again, and we could walk away, job done. Indeed, there was much in Tim's sermon that instinctively I would have included in this one. For it is our relationship with God who spoke to us face to face out of the fire on the mountain. This relationship is so all-encompassing, all-demanding, all-giving, that it should be impossible for us to have any other gods other than him as part of our lives. 
And Tim said that worship starts with recognising just who God is. True worship has to start with a revelation about who God is. And it has to be this revelation that he is the one and how much he loves us and how much he has done for us. And the scale of that revelation should leave us no room for other gods. The verse that I was reminded on when I was thinking that was his glory fills the temple. His glory, his presence, his truth, his majesty is so grand that there's no room for anything else. If only we can fix our eyes on him, all else becomes irrelevant and obsolete. His light, his magnificence, his brilliance just dazzles and we can't see anyone else. So the first commandment reminds us that God is powerful above all others. He is the one who appeared in Israel, appeared to Israel in the fire on the mountain. He is the one who brought Israel out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. I picked the Colossians uh, reading to be read alongside the Deuteronomy, not just because it's one of my favorite bits, but because it makes that same point about the supremacy of Christ. God is all-powerful, and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have seen the demonstration of his supremacy over every power that can stand against us, even against death itself. Colossians 2, verse 14 says, Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So there is much in this second commandment that is confirmation of the first. But so I don't seem lazy, and because I believe that I think God might have something new to say to us this evening, I'm focusing on digging a bit further into what is unique about this second commandment. Our reading uh, that we heard this evening was taken from the NIV translation, which renders the verse... You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. It doesn't actually mention idols in that translation. The New Living Version is very similar. You must not make for yourselves an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heaven or on the earth in the sea. You get the idol word in that version. The Amplified, as you would expect covers all the bases and has a fuller explanation. You shall not make for yourself an idol as an object to worship in any likeness, form or manifestation of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. The notable thing that all these versions have in common is the introductory words. You shall not make for yourself. And as I've been pondering this passage this week, this is what struck me. We're being warned against the idols that we make for ourselves. And in the context that the commandments were given, the Israelites were living in a place where there were many foreign gods, where their allegiance to their God was unusual and remarkable. And so that first commandment that reminds them to keep their eyes fixed on the one true God, to remember that it was him that they met in the fire in the mountain and brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and not to give their loyalty to any other gods. That makes sense because they were surrounded by other gods to choose from, if you like. They were potentially very easily distracted by other gods. And this second commandment to them is specifically not to make for themselves other gods 
or idols. Time and time again, as you read the Old Testament especially, you see that the people of Israel behave like really stupid toddlers. Have you noticed this? They're told specifically not to do something, and then they just go right ahead and do it. It's almost as if telling them not to do it's given them the idea. I was reminded of a friend of mine that I won't name here, but John will know who I'm talking about, uh, who was trying to understand how our electric fly swapped works. Have you seen one of those? Uh, so like a tennis bucket, and it's electrified, not with a great current, thankfully. Uh, and, and John explained to our friends how it works, and said, yeah, yeah, go on, just don't stick your tongue on it. And guess what? <laughs> Very silly, like a stupid toddler. And we see this again in the Exodus version of the people of Israel being given the commandments. Even while Moses is up the mountain, he ascends, you can read it for yourself in Exodus kind of chapter 32. So Moses um, has ascended to Mount Sinai, he's meeting with God. He instructs the people to wait at the foot of the mountain. The mountain is covered in cloud and the voice of God is heard speaking to Moses. And Moses is listening carefully because God has many things to tell him, not just the Ten Commandments, but many other important instructions that you can read in the sort of verses 20-ish and onwards of Exodus. Instructions about how they're going to live their life, how they're going to be holy and set apart, how they're to worship. And at the end of chapter 31, Moses is ready to return to the people with the stone tablets and the word of God. And this is what we read in Exodus verse 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will be before us. For this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. You can read the rest of that story in Exodus 32. Suffice it to say, Kirsty Alsop isn't the only one who smashes a tablet in anger, and it really doesn't end well for the people of Israel who make the idols. Moses was up the mountain in the cloud. He could hear the voice of God, and yet the people of Israel, we don't know what happened to Moses, we better make some idols. So let's think about what this tells us about the character and inclination of people to make idols for themselves. And the exasperated parent, what does it tell us about the character of God and how well he knows each of us? We sing jubilantly the refrain, God immortal, invisible, God only wise. Beautiful classic hymn. And apart from the time that Jesus walked on the earth in human form, our God is invisible. Our faith is a faith in an invisible God. We can experience his power. We can see his plan and purposes as they work out. We can hear testimony of how he transformed lives. We believe he can do more than we ask or imagine. But he is beyond expression and he defies explanation. Yet our human minds long for simple images and quick fixes. And we see this in the people of Israel. They are so eager to make for themselves an idol. So eager to dance and around a thing that they have made, despite the very real evidence that the one who saved them, freed them, and provided for them is so much more than that. It is a human characteristic that is still very true today, that we would rather put our trust in something that we have made with our own hands than in God. 
despite everything that we know about God's proven ability to provide, to rescue and to resource us, we'd rather work with our own hands to make something to worship, maybe our career or our pension. God has made us in his image. The right awestruck reaction is to worship the creator, yet our human inclination is often to make things in our image to worship. We have to be so careful that the things that we make don't become idols. It's a dangerous thing to say. There's much that worries me today about the way that children sometimes have become idols, centres of worship for their worried and anxious parents who are delighted to obsess over something that has been made in their image. A healthier and, I think, holier attitude is to recognise that children are gifts from God, created like us in his image for his praise and his glory. Something else that is prevalent in our culture is the worship of creation itself rather than the creator. In explaining the commandment against idolatry in Deuteronomy 4, verse 19, we read, God says, When you look up to the sky and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshipping things the Lord your God has apportioned to the nations under heaven. And so we come back to the central text for this evening, to the second commandment. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. Now, the church has argued for centuries over the point about whether making images of God is a breach of this commandment. The first record of such an argument is in the Synod of Alveria that was held in around 305 as part of the Roman province that's now in Spain. 19 bishops, 26 presbyters gathered along with some deacons and some laymen to agree rules concerning order and discipline among the Christian community. And Rule 36, there was 80 of them, I think they were there for quite a while, but Rule 36 says, it has seemed good that images should not be in churches so that what is venerated and worshipped not to be painted on the walls. And as this has been a bone of contention between different parts of Christian churches pretty much ever since, and especially during the time of the Reformation. Specifically, the argument centres on whether it is permissible to have images outside the church, so maybe we wouldn't have them in the church, but could we have them in our homes, or whether the prohibition related specifically to the images of God, or whether it was of any living thing. Certainly, it's obvious there's a split in modern churches between those who create, display, and sometimes even venerate uh, images generally, and, and some specifically of God, and the, those churches who choose to leave the inside of their sanctuaries relatively plain. I don't know how many of you have ever noticed or wondered why the inside of our building looks the way that it does, maybe why it looks different to some other churches. I don't know if the history of this church or in the construction of this new building uh, that was ever debated or discussed. I'm a bit nervous, actually, about whether I will discover after this sermon um, that I'm poking a hornet's nest <laughs> and that there was a big discussion about it. But certainly in the Methodist church that I once was part of, there have been some very difficult conversations about this. Uh, specifically, one lady who spent a very long time embroidering a picture of Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper and then her, uh, provoked a very long conversation about whether or not it was appropriate to hang that image in the church. 
One thing I know for sure is that I'm not going to settle a debate that has been raging for 1,700 years in one evening's sermon. But I think there is something important here for us. Those that argue against making images in a church do come back to the words in this 36 canon from the Synod of Elvia that what is worship should not be that which is painted on the walls. Roger Forster, in his book In Celebration of Discipline, agrees strongly with this point of view that to put images up risks lessening our worship. Not because we begin to worship the image itself, but because the image can never convey the full glory of God. And so we begin to worship a version of God that's in the image, or that's a shadow of God, rather than God in all his true glory. Have you ever had the experience of watching a film and being disappointed that what you see on the screen doesn't quite match up with how it was in your head when you read the book? (laughs) Reality is, of course, your imagination is much richer and fuller than even the most generous of Hollywood budgets. And the risk is that we settle for a compromise or a lesser image or a contained representation of God rather than the complex and glorious, powerful, mysterious, immortal, invisible God that is revealed in scripture, in history and throughout our own experience of him in the Holy Spirit. And I think that this is the idolatry that the church needs to be wary of. I think this is the warning for us tonight from the second commandment. Do not make for yourselves images of God that are anything less than the full glory of the Father. Do not make for yourselves images of God that are anything less than the full salvation of Jesus Christ. Do not make for yourself images of God that are anything less than the amazing power of the Holy Spirit. If you feel the absence of God in your life, if like Aaron and the people of Israel at the foot of the mountains, you wonder where he has gone, Don't turn your eyes away and make something that's smaller by your own hands to comfort you. Continue to look, to seek, to pray, to trust that the God who met you once and rescued you once is faithful, constant and true. Wait for him. The thing that I'm most worried about in our churches is not that people go off and worship other gods, but they settle for a compromised image of God that they've made for themselves, that... They settle for less than the full majesty of God. And I think this is the most dangerous thing of all, that we replace God with an image of a God that we have made that is a shadow of the real God, a compromise or an apology for God. The snake in the garden said to Eve, did God really say? And I think this is what we do sometimes. I think we ask ourselves, did God really say about all sorts of things? And we gently slide away from the truth an inch at a time, recreating God in an image that suits us rather than in a way that conforms to the truth revealed in scripture. There's a kid's song by Doug Hawley. You might know it. I don't know if you've sung it here. Have we made our God too small? Too small. We could probably sing it and do the actions afterwards if you like on the way home. Have we made our God too small? I think most of us have. I think I probably have. I think most of us make images for ourselves of a God that is smaller, more containable, more acceptable than the reality of God. And there's much at stake here. Romans 1 says, They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. 
this exchange is the idolatry, that we have the opportunity to know God and enjoy God in all his splendour, and yet we settle for less by exchanging that opportunity for a lie, for a compromise, for a shadow, for an apology for God that we create for ourselves. This is what the risk is for the modern church. Not that we abandon God, but we accept a compromised image of him in place of his glorious reality. Colossians 2, be encouraged in heart and united in love so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ in whom hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. When we elevate our own fear above God's truth, that is idolatry. When we elevate our own doubts above God's reality, that is idolatry. When we are more conscious of our own weakness than of God's power, that is idolatry. When we create for ourselves an image of a limited, compromising God who is distant and reluctant to intervene, and we lose sight of the one who fights for us, who saves us, who heals us, and who delivers us, that is idolatry. Richard Forster says, So I urge you, to still every motion that is not rooted in the kingdom. Become quiet, hushed, motionless, unless until you are finally centred. Strip away all excess baggage and non-essential trappings until you have come to the stark reality of the kingdom of God. Let go of all distractions until you are driven into the core. Allow God to reshuffle your priorities and eliminate unnecessary froth. Our first task is to grip the hands of Jesus with such tenacity that we are obliged to follow his lead and to seek first his kingdom. And so to close, I want to pray a prayer based on Colossians 2. Let us pray. So then, just as we received Christ Jesus as Lord, would you help us to continue to live our lives in him? rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as we have been taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Holy Spirit, by your power, would you see to it that no one takes us captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Speak to us and reveal us the reality of Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, we have been brought to fullness. Amen.